Good morning, TCC. We are Deirdorikis. Um, we'll be reading for you today. And we have, uh, my name is Guillermo. My name is Nadia. My name is Sophia. And I'm, I'm, this morning we're going to be reading from John chapter 15, verse 26 to chapter 16, verse 15. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And all, um, all this I have told you, so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when... Anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have um, not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me where are you going. Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe about me. But about righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than we can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Ordericas. So good to see so many of you this morning. I know that uh, I probably have on one occasion or another met most of you, at least in passing. Uh, You may not know too much about me if you're fairly new. Those of you who've been around for a while have heard all my stories at least two or three times. I'm running out of stories. Um, But uh, I just want to share a little bit about my, my, my own life this morning, just at the start. Um, I've been born and raised in Edmonton. Some of you knew that for at least for the first 25 years. I graduated from high school here. I went straight to the University of Alberta. I graduated with a Bachelor of Science, but it was in my last semester there where I really sensed the call of God on my life to enter into full-time ministry. And so I went straight from university to seminary. I ended up at uh, what is now Taylor Seminary, just down the road on 23rd Avenue. During my time in seminary, I served as a senior high youth worker at Central Baptist Church, and I know there's at least a few of us that maybe our lives overlapped a little bit then. And then I did uh, an internship in my last year of seminary out at Parkland Baptist in Spruce Grove, where again, there's a few people here where we overlapped in that uh, uh, church. 
After uh, graduating, I moved to Calgary, served my first full-time role there for five and a half years before moving out to Arnprior, Ontario, where it was my first senior role. We lived there for 12 years before returning to Edmonton in 2009. And so uh, after 17 and a half years of being away from the city, it was a little bit of a homecoming at the time. Um, in those 17 and a half years, there were a lot of changes. And uh, there was a number of significant historical landmarks. I like uh, following this group on Facebook called Historic Edmonton, where they talk about, you know, different uh, uh, they sh- people post pictures of different things, say, remember this? And I'm like, yeah, I remember that. I was there. Some of you may remember one of these landmarks that I think still stands, but it's boarded up now on White Avenue, and it's the Army and Navy Department Store. Everybody familiar with uh, most of uh, some of you you've got to get out more um but, uh, you know, this was the, you know, Army and Navy was kind of de- built as like Canada's original discount store. And we would go there and, you know, get winter boots for, you know, boots for the winter and rubber boots for the spring kind of thing. The upstairs had all the clothing. And then down in the basement, there were these stairs that kind of came from the front entrance down. And uh, there you could find, you know, hardware right next to some groceries and, uh, you know, some sporting goods and uh, toys. And I distinctly remember the toys because I was probably like 10 or 11 years old. There was a time in my life where I really liked to build models, model cars, model planes, um, you know, model ships, wh- whatever it was, I, I liked to put these things together. And, uh, and I got, uh, somewhere along the way, I can't remember if I got it as a gift or if my parents just bought it, a model of a 1976 Pontiac Trans Am. So you may remember this car. It was a hot car. There it is right there. Like, is that not stunning? That black car with the, it, nobody had one of these, did they? I mean, it was awesome. And so I'm putting this together, but there was a problem that I discovered, and that was that a piece was missing. It was the the piece that would kind of go inside, and it would be the windshield and the back window all together. And I was, as a little kid, I remember just being so disappointed about that. Well, we're at Army-Navy, and lo and behold, I see this exact same model. Instead of buying another one, I thought, you know... What if I just kind of casually open this box, grab the windshield, and just hightail it out of there? Well, I couldn't hightail it out of there because I was mom, but that's ex- I was with mom, but that's exactly what I did. And I remember this store clerk kind of looking at me. I felt so guilty. I, and I'm like, oh, she saw me. I'm going to be in so much trouble. Do I put it back and just pretend it never happened? And I remember walking up those stairs and sort of like glancing over my shoulder. She followed me. And I remember going outside down, walking towards the car, looking back to see if she was going to run after me. But, you know, I got out of there. I put my model together. And then every time I looked at that model, I still, again, had just these pangs of guilt. Just feeling just totally awful as a 10-year-old. And just thinking that this was just the worst thing that I could ever have done. I want to suggest to you that what I was experiencing, what I was feeling, is what Jesus is teaching his disciples in the verses that we're looking at today. And I wonder if maybe you ever felt just awful about something that you did, something that you said, 
Have you ever felt what theologians call conviction, where you just have this utter dreadfulness? It's not just feeling bad or feeling guilty, but mindful that our sin, in fact, dishonors God. It dishonors other people. In fact, it probably hurt other people. Some poor kid that bought that model and took it home also had a model without a windshield. Well, since early February, we've been considering the last words of Jesus as recorded by John. It's the final night that Jesus is with his disciples. They're together in the upper room, and he's preparing them for the inevitable, that he would be leaving them. And in just a few hours, he would be arrested, mocked, unjustly accused, face a sham trial, all leading to his death by crucifixion on a cross. We've been capturing these thoughts over these weeks under the theme, living the life. In other words, if we're going to follow Jesus, how then shall we live? And in these chapters on that last night, Jesus was in fact telling his disciples how to live after he is gone. And so today we're going to consider the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, this is a very broad topic. We could spend weeks diving deeper, probably months. And I'm very aware that by just touching on some things this morning that I may raise more questions than I have answers. But before we consider what the Holy Spirit does, let's see, in fact, how Jesus gets to this place. Of course, we know that Jesus would be leaving them. All of what Jesus is teaching them here started because he knew that he would be leaving them. When Jesus gathered with his disciples and told them that he, he told them this, they were obviously disappointed. This news of him leaving troubled them. It filled them with sadness and sorrow and grief. And if you go back to chapter 13 and verse 33, where Jesus says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. It's pretty clear that he has a deep love for these guys. And he wants them to be prepared for life after he's gone. And so he gives them words of instruction, of encouragement, of direction, of wise counsel. He in essence says, I'm going away and so you need to know this. And so we rightly pay attention to what he's saying. And he says things like, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Chapter 13 and verse 15, right after he had washed the disciples' feet. Chapter 13 and verse 34, a new commandment I give you, love one another. John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. Chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. John chapter 15 and verse 18. And so Jesus is responding to this emotional reaction of the disciples as he was telling them that he was leaving. You're going to be hated. This isn't going to be easy to live the life 
So, verse 26 that Thoroderica has read for us, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has mentioned the Spirit. Back in chapter 14 and verse 16, he said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And then in chapter 14, verse 26, he adds, But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. And so already in these two verses, we see a little bit about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word here um, is is, uh, parakletos, which is a title for the Holy Spirit. And it can be translated comforter, helper, counselor, advocate. And if you're following along in various translations today, those are probably likely one of those is used for this title of the Holy Spirit. And the beginning of chapter 16 begins with Jesus saying, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. And so when he says all of this, he's referring in essence to the previous 10 verses about the persecution that they will experience. This was the theme of Pastor Quinn's message last week. If you missed it, I encourage you to, to, to go back and maybe listen to it. In fact, if you've missed any messages, or maybe this is the first time, there's only been six so far, uh, do one a day, and by next Sunday you're all caught up. Jesus wants his disciples. He wants them and ultimately us to be aware of and to be prepared for persecution. There should be no surprises Following Jesus won't be easy. He says to them, you're going to be kicked out of this synagogue. People will think that they're serving God if they kill you. They will do this because they don't know the Father or Jesus. Exhibit A was the Apostle Paul who, in, chapter, in, in, in the book of Acts, was overseeing this very thing until he met Jesus. The reason this was so important to Jesus is because if they weren't prepared for this, if they weren't forewarned, they might be tempted to to fall away, to go astray, to walk away. And so he says in verse 4, I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. It's like, oh yeah, Jesus told me to expect this. But can you imagine the burden that they felt then? Jesus had said he was leaving. He told them that in his absence, it's going to be really hard to live the life. They're going to have to face this persecution alone. I suspect that they were just felt filled with this pervasive sadness. And Jesus refers to this on numerous occasions and talks about their sorrow and their grief. But it's into that Jesus speaks in verse 7. He says, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good 
It is for your good that I'm going away. I mean, what? How can this be good? We love being with you, Jesus. This has been a great three years together. How can it be good that you leave us? And Jesus continues, because unless I go away, the advocate, the spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Friends, are you following this? You see, Jesus is telling them to expect persecution. He says, you know, if you're going to live the life, if your walk is real and authentic, it's going to happen. Discipleship is costly. And it's going to happen in the absence of Jesus. However, it is for your good. It's for your benefit that I go. It's best for you. It's to your advantage. And those words might have just sounded absolutely hollow to them. I can imagine them going, yeah, right, easy for you to say. That is, until Jesus made it clear that while he was going away, he would not leave them alone. He would send the Holy Spirit, the advocate. And the advocate would be like Jesus, but different. Not only would he be with them, he would be in them. The Holy Spirit would not be limited by a physical body. He would not be limited by time and space. He would be everywhere all the time. And so, yes, this is a significant advantage. Following Jesus after his death and resurrection and ascension, where he goes and then sends the Spirit, is much better. And it wasn't just because the advocate would always be with him with them. But it was because the advocate would bring his comfort, his counsel, his peace, his understanding into their lives. And so who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? Now, in some ways, the Holy Spirit is the forgotten person of the Trinity. We could talk endlessly probably about the attributes and characteristics of God the Father, probably same with, you know, God the Son, But God the Holy Spirit, maybe not so much. Jesus has spoken of the identity of the Holy Spirit throughout these chapters. I already mentioned that he referred to him here as the counselor or the comforter or as the helper. And in verse 13, he's called the Spirit of truth and ultimately the one who will guide them into all truth. That ultimately is what the Holy Spirit does. He guides us into truth. Now, while much more could be said, let me just say a few things about the Holy Spirit, more kind of on the topic or the theme of the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a unique person. The Holy Spirit is a unique person. That means he is not a force or a power or an energy, right? This isn't some kind of Star Wars thing, you know, may the force be with you. And he is not an it, I I catch myself sometimes referring to the Holy Spirit kind of in neuter, like it. It does this. But no, it's he does this. And the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, the Trinity being defined as within the one being that is God. There exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit is a person, he can be grieved. 
as a person he's capable of loving, as a person his will can be resisted. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, Stephen is preaching and he says this, You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, you can imagine how that went over in that room. And those listening didn't respond very well at all. And they ultimately turned on Stephen and stoned him to death. Fulfilling the very words that Jesus had uttered here. You see, as a person, the work of the Holy Spirit can be quenched. You know, it's just like a bucket of cold water being poured on a, on a fire pit. First Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. Why? Because he's a unique person. Second thing we can say about the Holy Spirit is that he is one with the Father and the Son. I already referenced to this in the Trinity, but when we read these verses, we discover that the Holy Spirit has been sent by the Father, and he is also sent by the Son. And so in verse 26 of chapter 15, when the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father... And then in chapter 7, verse 16, it says, But if I go, I will send him to you. And the Holy Spirit then acts for them both. Three, together with the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit was involved and active in creation. You see, at the very beginning of Genesis, chapter 1 and verse 2, we read, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the what? Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so the Holy Spirit was present and active at creation. And a few verses later, verse 26, then God said, let us, who's he referring to? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And so humanity is created in the image of the triune God by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Fourthly, the Holy Spirit is the one, and this sounds maybe kind of funny, but makes Christians. The Holy Spirit makes Christians. John chapter 3 records a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus responds, verse 4, he says, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now you can see why Nicodemus was confused because he assumed that when when Jesus said you must be born again, that he was referring to something physical. But Jesus clarifies that he's talking about spiritual birth. And so he says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of the water And the Spirit. Flesh, he says, gives birth to flesh. But Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And so you say, oh, you're talking about those, you know, born-again Christians. Friends, there is, in fact, no other kind. Faith is not something genetic. It's not 
physical birth that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about spiritual birth. And that birth is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that opens our eyes to the truth. And the Holy Spirit takes that which was dead and makes it alive. Breathes life into the dead. And lastly, the Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. Paul, writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So God breathed out His Word. God, in the person of the Holy Spirit, created Scripture itself. And Peter speaks to this and helps us understand how Scripture was breathed out by God. He writes in 2 Peter 1.21, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so God used humans. He used their situations and he used their personalities, but it was the Holy Spirit that guided the very words that they wrote. So that is a little bit about the Holy Spirit. So what then does the Holy Spirit do? And let's return to our text and see for ourselves. In addition to thinking about who the Holy Spirit is and understanding some of the activities that he does based on who he is, what does Jesus say about the Holy Spirit here in John chapter 16? And basically in relationship to the world, he says very clearly that he convicts the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. Now stay with me. This might get a little heady and I want to make it as clear and as simple as I can. I'm basing this on verse 8 where Jesus says, when he, again he's referring to the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. And so he said, say, he, he does what? You see, the Holy Spirit's work is to prove the world to be in the wrong. In other words, to convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment, or simply to prove the world guilty. You see, without the Holy Spirit, as human beings, we would not understand spiritual realities. And so the Holy Spirit's work is to ensure that we have a right understanding of sin, that we have a right understanding of righteousness, And thirdly, that we have a right understanding of judgment. And when we say the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict, we mean to say that his role is to to cross-examine with the purpose of convincing or refuting an opponent. And that's why the NIV says, prove the world to be in the wrong. Now, how does the Holy Spirit do this? Well, Jesus goes on to explain this in verse 9. He says, about sin... Because people do not believe in me. So first of all, the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin. He brings guilt of sin to the human consciousness. Not so that we feel shame. Not so that we leave feeling all guilty, feeling awful. But so that humanity would seek the mercy of God. 
And we see an example of this in Acts 2. It's the day of Pentecost and the disciples had gathered and they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And he comes with power and Peter goes on to preach this powerful sermon. And he basically ends it by saying to them, look at you killed him. You crucified him. But God raised him from the dead because he lived a righteous life and he paid the penalty for sin. And now he's alive and because he's alive, there's judgment. And Acts 2 verse 37 records the response of the people. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Notice that phrase, they were cut to the heart. It wasn't Peter's preaching, but it was the convicting power of the Holy Spirit through Peter's preaching that caused this response to happen. And Jesus specifically states that the primary sin is because people do not believe in me. Now, most people don't look at their unbelief as sin. But under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that is in fact the primary focus here. To convict means to convince someone of the truth, to to reprove, to accuse, refute, or cross-examine a witness. In other words, the Holy Spirit acts much like a prosecuting attorney who exposes evil, reproves evildoers, and convinces people that they need a Savior. In 1980, a couple of years at least after my experience in the basement of Army and Navy, and probably countless other missteps, and sinful actions along the way. I sat night after night hearing Billy Graham preach the gospel. And every night ended the same way. You are a sinner in need of a Savior. And I heard that over and over again, and I felt the weight of my sin. But it wasn't until the last night or the second to last night that I sensed, no, I got to do something about this. At that point, the call and the conviction of the Holy Spirit was too heavy. After all, I was a thief. (laughs) And so I responded. And I remember going forward there at Northlands Coliseum and giving my life to Jesus Christ. It's not that complicated. Friends, can I ask you, have you sensed your own sin? Have you felt this deep, awful, kind of heaviness of sin? And maybe you've never actually thought about your unbelief in Jesus being sin. But here's the beauty of it. If you feel that, rejoice. Give thanks. Because that is evidence of the Spirit of God at work in your life. That grace is at work. And so when you hear that, when you listen to that, you respond. How? 
in the same way that people listening to Peter did there in Acts chapter 2. They said, well, what do we do? And they said, well, repent, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, even before we are followers of Jesus Christ, even before we've put our faith and trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit does His work to first draw us to Himself, and then when we say yes to Jesus, He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, two things have to come together there. One, we need to see our sin for what it is, rebellion against God. And two, we need to see our Savior. That we see that He loves us no matter what. That we see grace as an unconditional, unmerited gift from God. And then when we, by faith, turn to Jesus, we receive what the Bible calls the righteousness of Christ. A righteousness that God has provided for us in Christ. And this is what Jesus talks about in verse 10. And along these lines now, the Spirit then has to convict us actually about righteousness because the world has a wrong understanding of it. We think there are degrees of sin. And so the world, in a sense, has a relative view of righteousness, right? And we tend to categorize other people and then compare ourselves to other people. Well, there are those that are really bad sinners, and then there are some that are not so bad. They're pretty good. And then there are some that are better. And I'm going to live my life just always trying harder to be better. And at some point, We think that as we try hard enough, we will be good enough to be acceptable to God. And again, the Holy Spirit's work is to convince us that our own righteousness doesn't even come close to Jesus' righteousness. And that apart from Him and without Him, we are totally lost. And so when we turn to Jesus in faith, we are, as Paul says in Philippians 3, 9, we are found in him, we're found in Christ. He says, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not a righteousness that says, I did all these right things and all these good things. I I tried to live a sinful life and I was pretty good. Not a righteousness that comes from our own, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And so you see the progression here? The Holy Spirit first convicts us of sin and our need of Christ's righteousness, freely given from God when we turn to Jesus in faith. And finally, He convicts the world that there is, in fact, such a thing as judgment. And most people don't even want to talk about it or think about it. I can say as a 13-year-old boy, I probably didn't know much about sin, but I knew I was a sinner. After all, I was a thief. I probably lied here and there to get out of trouble. Don't tell me you didn't do that as a kid. But I knew I was far from perfect and that I could never match the righteousness of Jesus 
And frankly, I knew that I was in trouble because I was under judgment. And there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. And friends, maybe that seems like a really terrible thing. And you think, man, is that ever depressing? Because if that's our fate. But you see, and here's the beauty and the wonder and the mystery of it all. When the Holy Spirit does His convicting work about sin, about righteousness, about judgment, and I responded to Him by faith, it actually brought tremendous freedom and joy and peace. And I suspect if you have had that encounter with the Holy Spirit, you could testify the same. In fact, Jesus in verse 27 says, you know, the Holy Spirit will testify, but you must also testify. So we need to tell each other people the story of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. How He brought us to repentance, how He brought us to faith, and encourage one another with those stories. Let me just give you a couple of quick concluding thoughts as you listen to this this morning. Number one, come to Jesus. I don't know how else to say that. But if you have not met the person of Jesus Christ, if you have not acknowledged the sin in your life and come to him in repentance and received the grace and love and forgiveness of Jesus, come to him. Just say yes to him. Because he's the Savior that we need. He's the Savior that you need. Secondly, pray for others. If you've come to faith in Christ, I think it's really important for us to note that our role is not to bring conviction in somebody else's life. Right? That's the role of the Spirit. And so, maybe you know somebody in your life, somebody that you love dearly. They're not walking with Jesus. Maybe they haven't said yes to Jesus. And you pray for them. God, I pray that the conviction of your spirit would be so real and palatable and heavy on them that there's nothing else that they can do but turn to you in repentance and faith. Pray, in fact, that they would experience the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly then, I just summed it up this way, live in the presence, power, and peace of the Holy Spirit. You see, the text does go on to say that the Holy Spirit then guides us into all truth. He illuminates the Scriptures for us. In other words, His work is to open our eyes and enlarge our ability to see. And so when we read the very God-breathed words of of the Spirit in the Bible and we live in obedience to it, we're filled with the Holy Spirit and He continues to do His work in us and through us. But we need Him. It's by His grace that we walk every day. It's by His grace that we have breath. It's by His grace that we can love other people. It's by His grace that we can turn to Him and walk with Him and know Him and share Him. But oh, how we need Him. 
I'm going to invite the worship team to come. We're going to sing a song here to close. It's a song we've sung before, but it has already struck me in some of the songs that Pastor Adam chose this morning that uh, already have just spoken to the truth of what I shared with you this morning. I think this word is, this song is just such, such a great expression of our faith. Lord, oh, how we need you. Where sin abounds, grace runs deep. It's not quite the exact line. I'm not good with memorizing lyrics to songs, but I suspect when you read this and sing this, you're going to know exactly. Friends, I want to just invite you as we sing. Maybe you do need to come to Jesus this morning and you know it. I want to give you that opportunity. Just come forward. We'd love to pray with you. Maybe you realize that there is someone that you've been trying to convict. And you can turn that over to Jesus. Just come forward and pray. Maybe today in an expression of just saying, Lord, I... I want to live in the presence, power, and peace of the Holy Spirit, but oh, how I need you. Just come to the front. Maybe we kneel here, pray together. But let's turn this time over to the Lord and just allow the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do in our lives. Let's sing together. I invite you to stand.